Welcome to the Phase World Podcast. Engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. It was like really a big street fight to try to live. That I had to start like recognizing those thoughts as a way that if, if I believed I was bad, then I could never come into a room and be hurt. I was ensuring I was controlling my own rejection. So through all the practices that I've had at yin yoga, the trauma program, the recognition that those crazy thoughts are actually trying to protect me, and then coming back in, creating the space in the body through the breath, through the other things I do, there's a way to renegotiate with the nervous system and over time rewire. And so now when the crazy thoughts come, right, on a good day, I can be like, oh, I'm just gonna breathe because it's my system telling me something that's very real, but not actually true. Here's a space where I can renegotiate what that discomfort is, where it comes from, what I can do to sort of capacity build when I'm uncomfortable off the mat. It's allowed me to like find the other spectrum of joy and happiness and stuff like that, which was never, I never thought possible. Hello, this is Faye Wu, and welcome to another week of the Phase World podcast. Who are we and what do we do? Well, Phase World is a homegrown podcast designed to interview people who live their interesting and creative lives under the radar. People often ask me where and how I find my guests. They come from all walks of life. Recently, there have been medical doctors, linguists, martial artists. But in the past, they came from Cirque du Soleil, marketing agencies, solopreneurs. I just never know. And I love surprising myself and you, my listeners. Thank you for joining me on this journey. Today on our show, I discovered a woman named Emily Peterson. She is a certified 500-hour yoga instructor, Usui Reiki master, and licensed Timbo facilitator and trainer. Timbo, T-I-M-B-O, stands for Trauma-Informed Mind-Body, which has been instrumental in her own personal healing process. Formerly a competitive athlete, Emily began practicing yoga to manage chronic pain from injuries more than 15 years ago. For Emily, yoga offered an important meditative practice and the experience of a safe connection to her body, which were transformative and led to personal healing from an eating disorder, depression, and trauma. This is a two-part episode hosted by me and my executive producer, Adam Leffert, an avid yoga practitioner who first met Emily and introduced her to me. We had the time to dive deep into Emily's personal stories, the good and not-so-good times of her life. Storytelling has been a powerful tool for Emily's teaching. 
It took a while before she could share her trauma as a person who attempted suicide and, and was sexually abused. I personally know several men and women who have lived through these torturous experiences. I hope this episode opens up doors and possibilities for those who still live in the dark. An unexpected experiment that took place in these episodes are these many moments where Emily invited us to practice a form of mindfulness meditation with her. It was a powerful experience, even with the recording still turned on. Face World Podcast is a self-funded, homegrown podcast created for unsung heroes like Emily and self-made artists who dare to carve out their own path. Without further ado, please welcome Emily Peterson to the Face World Podcast. by your work, um, by the video that you recorded of yourself. I find that such a vulnerable uh, sort of way to kind of express yourself fully. Right? You really unveiled a lot of things about who you are, including your childhood, including yourself as a um, very competitive athlete and the struggles that you went through, which I think are certainly things that many people, and especially women um, in this world, can really resonate with. And uh, not only you, you didn't decide to share your story, but you've taken a really big step with yoga teaching, meditation, and also temple to really help people around you. So tell us a little bit about maybe your origin stories of um, you know, kind of where this began and, and triggered such development. Um, sure. Um, so I, I don't know. I grew up in Southern California, and my parents were divorced when I was one, and so there was a lot of movement and a lot of step parents coming in and out and things, and a lot of moving around. And then I was an athlete. I started out as an athlete when I was like two or something. I started gymnastics <laughs> for fun, you know, but became more competitive, and then switched to volleyball in seventh or eighth grade, I guess. And during that time, I played for several teams, but one was a very competitive national championship winning team. There were lots of issues. I mean, I don't I feel like a lot of my story is, you know, trauma and stuff, which it is. Um, and I guess that's how I got to where I am. So I guess that's what's coming out now. But um, it was pretty abusive. I had developed a pretty serious eating disorder. I mentioned in that documentary that they filmed, you know, that there was physical and uh, emotional abuse. Some girls were sexually abused. Um, and then when I got a scholarship to college to play volleyball, a lot of things continued. I had another sort of big crisis around uh, another sexual abuse and the eating disorder got worse and all of that. So I started becoming hospitalized um, initially for the eating disorder. And then, you know, I was pretty, pretty depressed, pretty suicidal, um, doing a lot of self-injurious behaviors. So the struggle became just how to stay alive for many years. After I had a huge suicide attempt, which is referenced in the documentary, I think to which you're referring to, there's sort of two things out there about my story. One was a, a video from Kenya. I sort of had to just figure out how I was going to stay alive skipping ahead like I don't know how many years Timbo came into my world after I became a yoga teacher and I can go back and double back into why that happened um, and Timbo is really the thing that has given me like a full life back um, and it's 
my understanding of my purpose of being here on this planet is to sort of be of service to others. Um, and I, I try to do that in various ways. I've been in your yoga class. That's kind of what brought us together, mm -hmm. a yin yoga class. And just to say, among the reasons why I wanted you to be here was the extraordinary experience of being in that class and the warmth and really a subtlety that I think you don't always find with people. Maybe a difference from, like, as a competitive athlete, there's a sort of explosiveness in this drive, and I have to admit I'm kind of curious about that. Like, of course, when you're two, you don't set yourself up to be a competitive athlete. Right. But to get that far, there must have been some sort of an unusual, powerful drive in you. And even the name of your yoga class, you know, yin yoga, mm -hmm. brings up images of, well, the yin and the yang and, and how those things come together. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I was steered sort of into athletics when I was little. I, I grew up sort of wanting in my head to be or my heart to be a Broadway dancer. <laughs> um, and got sort of steered uh, because of what I could do, I guess, into athletics. Um, and there was, a, there was a huge drive. I mean, and I think looking back, there was sort of multiple reasons for that drive, not only to, I mean, I loved being active and I loved what I did, but also there was some external pressure, I mean, to perform and, and, and I still was probably pretty quiet in that space anyway, even though you know, I was competing on a pretty serious level. And then when I got into doing yoga, I, I, I started doing yoga to try and heal from athletic injuries. I had heard that it was helpful for that. And that was like 97 or something like that. And that was a year or so, two years after my big suicide attempt. So when I started doing yoga, I was still doing it as a competitive athlete. And while it did help my injuries, I was still sort of injuring myself in the process because I was still like, you know, I can't really, couldn't really take that out of my identity at the time. But what I was finding simultaneously was these set of practices were these set of practices of breathing and, a, you know, a spiritual side that was starting to open up a new space for me is certainly about being in my body. Um, and then when I did my yoga teacher training, it was definitely alignment-based vinyasa. You know, I studied biomechanics and it was very much like almost me like coaching people um, through their practices in this sort of go, go, go kind of way. And then I got hurt again. And I was sort of in and out of bed for like three days sort of teaching and going back in bed and teaching going back in bed. And I had bought a Sarah Powers Insight Yoga book and it was about yin yoga and she's a Buddhist practitioner also. Um, so I sat there reading it or lying there reading it and I was like, oh, this is really interesting. It speaks to the Buddhist practices that I do. Um, I'm gonna go take a class. And so the first yin class I took, I was like, what the hell is this? Like this sucks, you know, like I actually want to kill this teacher, you know, seriously. Why, why is it? Why Cause did I, it jive with you? I had never been still, you know, I mean, I, I meditated in stillness, which was a different thing, but yin yoga, you actually feel sensations in your body, you have emotions, I had memories, I, my mind was going crazy, and, you know, we're holding this pose, the dragon, for like five minutes, and she's reading a poem or something, and I'm like, <laughs> shut that up, you know, I mean, and I had all this rage, and I was like, this is crazy, like, what is this? Mm -hmm. This is something very interesting right now. And then when I got done, I felt awesome. And I was like, okay, there's something here, you know? So I just started practicing more yin, and then I did a training with her. And it was a new door being opened for me in terms of like how I could, one, transform or continue to transform myself into a more balanced person, but also 
really diving into my relationship with how I controlled my body, how I ignored all of my body's feedback, how I would just sort of plow through whatever it was, disregarding pain mm -hmm. and things like that, and to create a space in these three to five minute shapes where it's like, okay, I feel sensation. What am I gonna, what do I do? I used to do things like self-injure and have eating disorder stuff and like, you know, drugs and, and all of that kind of stuff to get rid of any discomfort that I had. Here's a space where I can renegotiate what that discomfort is, where it comes from, what I can do to sort of capacity build when I'm uncomfortable off the mat. And ultimately it's really given me like a directly proportional to how much sort of discomfort I can, and not in a suffering sort of way, but it's allowed me to like find the other spectrum of joy and happiness and stuff like that, which was never, I never thought possible. So 97 was a pretty big year. I remember the number, the, this year has come up multiple times and certainly there are many areas of struggles uh, that we have covered to a certain um, extent, suicide, eating disorder. We also talk about postpartum depression, but pretty serious ones. So it seems like you are someone who have experienced a lot of them possibly at the same time, but 97 is a time where you said that there was an attempt of suicide. What was happening at the time and what sort of triggered and you know, drove you to that extreme? Yeah. Um, uh, 97 uh, was when I started yoga. 96 was my big, the big suicide attempt. So it was last year was my 20 year anniversary of my new life, I guess. I mean, I had tried once before and didn't succeed either in that attempt. I just could not see that I was, I could not understand that there was anything about me that was worth continuing to live and the amount of suffering that I felt that I was causing those around me, just being chronically in and out of the hospital, not being able to move past some of the things that had happened. Um, and I just really believed that those around me would be better off without me there. You know, when people are chronically depressed, it's not as if they're never happy, but I had just lost complete ability to recognize any moments of happiness. And I felt like, well, I'm doing all of these things that are not good for me anyway, that the only way out I could see for the people around me, really, and for myself, was to take my own life. So. I have lost friends to suicide, and that's something that I could never reconcile and to really never get past uh, as an outsider. And it feels very much like one because oftentimes you, you don't see it coming at all. You know, uh, those people are usually successful, beautiful, travel around the world. And I wonder, you know, there was that in between time, 96, and uh, so you didn't succeed. I'm very glad that that was the case. and. But coming out of that, was there any vivid memories of people or events or things that happened, you know, maybe 96 and 97, that perhaps snapped you out of it and made you realize how special and loving that you are and you're capable of? Do you recall any moments? I mean, you know, a long time after that, it was a street fight. I mean, my doctor, who I cared very much about, told me and they came to say to my family that I wasn't going to live. Like, I don't know how now this way in which I, I'm just amazed by the human body, like what I did and I actually did live. But my psychiatrist, my doctor, who I was very close to, came and said to me, you know, he's like, Emily, I can deal with the eating disorder. I can eat, deal with like other things. He's like, you try again, 
you know, if you don't succeed, like, I can't work with you anymore, you know? So it was that one statement of, like, what happens if I were to do this again? And I lived and I lost him. That was not acceptable to me at all. So that was the one thing for a while that sort of kept propelling me to work. And I was like, okay, I'm going to live. So how are we going to do this? But when I got out of the hospital, the weekend that I got out and I was playing uh, semi-pro beach volleyball tournaments. So when I left college, uh, I started playing beach volleyball. And my partner finally found out like where I was and when I got out. And she said, you know, Emily, let's go, let's go play a tournament in Michigan. Like, let's get away from where we normally were playing. No one will know us, whatever, let's just go play there. And and we got to the semifinals in that tournament and she had, you know, we had sort of gotten a little bit of a group of people sort of watching. And I, I think she had told them that I had just gotten out of the hospital. She did not tell them why. So we had like this little cheering section, <laughs> <laughs> which was super special. And I felt like actually I was going to die playing that because I mean, like, <laughs> no, we're still, you know, was, there was nothing. But um, that was certainly a moment of just like, oh, okay, like people don't know me, but they're kind of getting behind what I'm doing here and that was just kind of a a moment you know of like okay well there's connection there can be connection out there but still kind of that was a way in which I was like well if they truly knew who I was though they would certainly not feel connected so it was really a it was like really a big street fight Mm -hmm. to try to live there was no sort of snapping out of it there were just sort Mm -hmm. of motivating factors of like why I and plus my family at that point, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. the devastation that I put them through, there was no way I could do that again. So I had to begin working pretty hard to, to live. Yeah. to where, with all the pain and with all the things that we all struggle with, you're that person, I'm sure, for a lot of people that, that leads other people forward, that people feel like they don't want to disappoint you, that they don't want to leave you behind. So also, I was wondering, like, the, we talked about the yoga, and I almost have this, like, a visual image of these different sort of layers of a person. So one of the things, when I came into yoga, there's the, I hate this, definitely had the hate this feeling, and some of the teachers even say, now put your block down and don't throw it at me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you just don't want to project it on them for making you hold your dolphin for, for such a time. But for me, there was that pain, and there's different kind. Now there's the kind of like, oh, I hate this now, but I'm going to like it later. You know, having you as a friend and having other friends who are really professional level challenged with mental illness, like go visit them in, the, in McLean's for you know, months at a time. The will to live is there, the drive part, which was in your sports is there, um, the connection to other people, the feeling of disappointment. But what I don't hear in you, and I wonder whether it's there or whether it shifted or got sort of mushed down, is the just the wrong idea. Some of my friends who I'm very close to well enough to know that they use their intelligence, but it's crazy. And the crazy argues with the sane. And after some number of years, the crazy does win, mm-hmm. even with all the therapy and the pills. and the. So I can appreciate the abyss and looking into it and being drawn in. I'm just wondering, like, do you fear, like, sitting and doing a podcast is one kind of a, a little butterfly flutter? Or is it all just, you know, physical, emotional 
sort of juicy life and you, you make your way? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I, first of all, you know, my one of my switches in my uh, mentality was that everything, right, that I had gone through now became an asset to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one sort of overarching shift in mentality that I could move sort of from shame to like be of service because of what I'd gone through, not in spite of. And then concurrent to all of this has been sort of the work that I've done in the trauma program and the studying that I've done around the nervous system and the understanding that even all of the behaviors and behaviors and thoughts and all of that, there's this bi-directional way that it's connected to the nervous system of the body. And whether it's a podcast or whether it's getting up and teaching yoga or whether it's a feeling that I just am not worthy of love and connection, it's the same nervous system running. So how could I begin to then hear the crazy thoughts in my head, which they're not gone, (laughs) right? I mean, they're still there because they're coming from sensations in my body to start that way in which I could pause, create space and be like, okay, this is actually serving me or has served me in the past. So if I walked into any given room thinking, which I used to, that I was a horrible, terrible person, unworthy of love and connection, and even going to the crazy thought of like, if there was an earthquake in China, there was somehow that my innate badness caused that to happen. My therapist used to call it negative grandiosity that I had to start like recognizing those thoughts as a way that if, if I believed I was bad, then I could never come into a room and be hurt. I was ensuring I was controlling my own rejection. Yeah, so if I walk around feeling like or sitting in those thoughts, which again are coming from sensations in my body, which are linked back into my nervous system, where, I, where we have a nervous system where getting kicked out of the cave equals a threat to survival, right? I mean, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right, is food and all that, but connection is number one. So how do we all, we all do it, adapt in our lives to ensure connection? And at some point it works for us. You know, I was told when I was playing volleyball that I had to keep losing weight, even though I was like, whatever, how many pounds? And then some coach said, don't do that anymore. But I was way on my way of like being like, oh, I can control my own pain by not eating. Right? So I started off the eating disorder in order to be connected to my coaches. And then over time, that becomes maladaptive because yeah. it's not. It's not good, right? So if I could start to begin to see the crazy thoughts or hear the crazy thoughts, pause, come back into my body. What's happening in my body right now? And then I've, you know, with the PTSD, is the body telling me something that is true in this moment? No. If I walk in to a podcast okay. with two people that I know, I'm not actually going to die, even though my nervous system is literally telling me that. And all the thoughts of going, well, oh, I'm comparing myself to XYZ guest. I don't even know why they're bringing me here, (laughs) right? All of those thoughts are in service of one thing, which is to protect me from being vulnerable. So through all of the practices that I've had, yin yoga, the trauma program, the recognition that those crazy thoughts are actually trying to protect me, and then coming back in, creating the space in the body through the breath, through the other things I do, there's a way to renegotiate with the nervous system and over time rewire. And so now when the crazy thoughts come, right, on a good day, I can be like, oh, I'm just going to breathe because it's my system telling me something that's very real but not actually true. And I think that one of the reasons why I do what I do with yin yoga and then the energy healing practice and then the trauma work, it's like the triangle 
of this somatic-based healing. I mean, I've been in therapy out the wazoo, which is great. Like, you need that for the mind. But this stuff lives in the body. There's no argument to that now. For me, the healing is back through the body and renegotiating the space in the body. But for a long time, I did everything I could to stay out of the body, so the crazy, in quotes, crazy thoughts, I lived in that space, right? So that's where I lose hope, and that's where I feel mm-hmm. like I'm not connected to anyone, and in fact, who, who, in the God, who in their right mind would ever want to be connected to me. There's so many, but that's one of the reasons I really wanted to make sure, make certain that you were here, because you know, I've been to talk therapy, I have a lot of friends that have done that, but there's something you can't reach. I think there's a level where talk sometimes can't reach, but everybody has a body. And even from what you're saying, there's the pleasure, but then there's also the pain, the people have the pain. Right. So whichever medicinal modality you subscribe to, whether it's gonna give you pimples or give you a headache or you know, stomach ache um, or, or odd behavior, just trying to block that dam of energy is not gonna do it. So I, you can let the energy keep going and that the words about it are, this will serve me because I'll be able to connect to other people who have the same drive or the same pressure on them. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I, you know, one reason I think that there's only so much that talk therapy can do, right, again, is because this stuff lives in the body, but in utero, to by the time we even form any cognitive capacity, you know, pre-language, we're running on a nervous system where, again, the threat of survival um, or the, the, the perceived or real um, threat of, of disconnection from your caregivers is a threat to one's survival. So we've all had that. We've all had it. So we all have trauma. Some people have traumatic events, right? But being a human being is not about the story. It's not about what we say in our, you know, I mean, stories actually in a lot of ways sometimes connect, but also can very much uh, disconnect, you know, from like, well, I don't, I didn't experience that. I know what it feels like to feel guilt. I know what it feels like to feel shame. And as a little person, we all grow up with this primitive system coding that a threat to our connection to our caregivers, perceived or real, literally is a threat to survival. And then we start to adapt from there, Mm -hmm. right? Oh, my mom has a bad day. She comes home and yells. Let's say I'm crying and she comes home and yells. Well, my little person brain, that everything is about me, might come up with the conclusion that crying is not good. Crying is ensures my disconnection from my mother and, or in fact, anger. I work with a lot of people who come in there like, I've never had big T trauma, but I can't feel emotions. I can't allow myself to feel emotions. Whatever reason, this stuff gets coded in our bodies and then we adapt and when we're little, it's ingenious for a little person to stop crying to make sure they're not yelled at. But what happens over time, right? Hope you enjoy this episode of the Face World podcast. My team and I will be thrilled if you choose to write us a review on iTunes. It really helps to get the word out. Simply search for Face World podcast in your iTunes app under podcast. Click on readings and reviews tab and then write a review. The star review takes seconds or a brief text review will be fantastic too. 
thank you on behalf of me and my team from FaceWorld.